Predicting the future is big business, but there is only one place where you can read about the future of planet Earth and be confident that you are not being taken. Turn in your Bible with our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as Daniel chapter 2 presents a dream of destiny that stretches history from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to the final ruler who will conquer all things. How many remember the super collider? How many of you lost homes because of the super collider? The idea of we were going to build a 50-mile track and we were going to put protons in it, accelerate them, and then we're going to accelerate protons the other way. We're going to have an incredible collision, and then we're going to analyze really carefully. Do you realize that last Wednesday, the big collider that CERN created, which is a conglomerate of a bunch of European countries, they flipped the switch. How many of you heard that on the news? And everything went well there. They stopped protons kind of like a train track where you stop them at crossings every once in a while. Everything is working fine. And they're going to find the Higgs boson. When I was in chemistry, we studied about protons and neutrons in the nucleus of an atom. Now we talk about quarks and mesons. And now we're looking for the mysterious little particle or energy called the Higgs boson. Another thing that we might find is we might find the dark matter that somehow holds everything together. Isn't that exciting? How many of you are thrilled about it? If you're a physicist, you are really excited about that. You ought to be excited about it because we might be able to find some energy sources and unwind a little bit more of what some of the power sources that God used that might make gasoline, you know, not be needed anymore. So you should be excited about it. But When the physicists flipped the switch, the cry started immediately. It's going to be the end of the world, and we're going to create a wrinkle in time, and we're going to all disappear into a black hole. Isn't that encouraging? Well, you're still here, but I would pay up your eternal life insurance because they've just accelerated protons in one direction. They're going to accelerate in the other way. The collisions haven't really started yet, so we're not quite to the wrinkle in time yet. So be sure you're right with Jesus. What I'm illustrating to you is you live in a world where all the way through your life, people will try to motivate you with fear. I thought back over my own life. I grew up as a little kid. I went to Fielding Elementary School in New Jersey. Mayor and I just went to visit. And I remember Khrushchev was just across the Hudson River banging his shoe at the United Nations, crying out in the peace-oriented United Nations, we will bury you. And I sat in hallways. They'd ring the bell, and I would sit in hallways with my leather jacket in the hallway protecting myself from nuclear fallout when Manhattan was blown away. If you know anything about nuclear energy and a little bit about physics, leather jackets, even if they cost $150, aren't going to help you too good. Then I thought about looking at my computer as we went into the 21st century with great fear and trepidation. It was like a mission impossible. As we went through the new year, Y2K told me my computer was going to destroy everything and the whole world, even some of my friends, some of my Wycliffe friends. And this is what's amazing to me because my Wycliffe friends, since I was a little boy, they're the ones that go out into the jungle. They actually train people to live in absolutely zero civilization. 
Some of my Wycliffe friends stored cans of food. They, could, they were like Masada. They had water. They sold their houses, moved farther out in the country. How many of you, I'm not going to ask you how many of you did that. And I'm not picking on you, but I, I just thought it was, I, I love the Lord. I think it's a great sense of humor. Here's my friends that know how to live in the Amazon, but they're afraid of the computers. And, and, I, and I was just got back from Albania. Nothing worked in Albania. The electricity went off repeatedly in Albania. Who cared whether a computer went on or off? I mean, sewage was going through the open streets. The world wasn't going to come to an end because the computer doesn't know the difference between 1999 and 2000. But my own nephew, my own brother-in-law, spent four years in a big pharmaceutical company getting ready for it. Some of you did. Fear. Now we've got the new fears. The world's going to fall into a black hole. And I want you to learn this morning. Fear is a very powerful motivator. But it's not a very good decision maker. And as one of God's children... The Lord doesn't want you to sell your homes. He doesn't want you to move. He doesn't want you to have to drug yourself because you're afraid. And as you go through your life, you're going to have people that try to use fear, that try to use terror to manipulate you and to get you to do very powerful things that will be very disruptive to your life. And it all revolves around the question... How is the world going to end? And before we get done today, I'm going to answer the question, not only how is the world going to end, how is history going to end, but I'm also going to tell you who's going to be on top in the end. Now, those are pretty important questions. I want all the little kids to know you're going to go to university and at university, they're going to tell you that everything is cyclic, everything just repeats itself. But in the same breath, they'll also tell you that very soon we're going to destroy the whole earth. So you, so you need to get your banners out because we're going to destroy the earth. Now, that's really interesting because if everything is just cyclic and if Buddhism and Hinduism teaches that history just keeps repeating itself, then it ain't ever going to end. But I got news for you, it is. And I know who's going to be on top in the end. I want you to turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 2, because in Daniel chapter 2, the king that really controls the universe, the king that created the oceans, created the continents, the one that created you, the one that breathed into your nostrils the breath of life, the one who's going to give you physical life until he chooses to take it away from you, he has revealed the dream of destiny, and Daniel's now going to reveal that dream. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't trusting his wise men. He thought they were conning him, which they probably were. And so he came up with an idea. If you can interpret my dream and tell me what's going to happen, if you've got that insight into the mysteries, then you ought to be able to tell me what I dreamed without me even telling you. He doesn't think anybody can do it. The wise men say nobody can do it but the gods, and the gods don't dwell among men. And there is a man of Israel named Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They just had a prayer meeting. And what happens in a prayer meeting? Who do you connect with in a prayer meeting? Everybody tell me, who do you connect with in a prayer meeting? Do the gods dwell among men? Does the ultimate God, does he dwell among men? 
Yeah, you believe he came to live here. When Jesus ascended, he said, I will not leave you alone. I will send the comfort of the Holy Spirit who will live in your life. Our God does dwell with us. Amen? And therefore, he revealed the dream to Daniel. Look what happens. Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. Then Daniel went to, went to Ariok. Notice, Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men. So Ariok is the butcher of Babylon. In fact, his name even sounds like butcher in, in Akkadian. And Daniel says, don't, Ariok, don't execute the wise men of Babylon. Notice that he's not angry against the teachers that had given him a rough time for three years. They are also going to be his enemies throughout this book, but Daniel's now preserving their life. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once, which was a really dangerous thing to do. Remember in the book of Esther in the Persian kingdom that you didn't go in before the king unless he asked you to come? So Ariok and Daniel are kind of putting themselves on the line, but Daniel's going to be killed anyway, so what's the risk? So Ariok took Daniel to the king, and he said, Now notice, I have found a man... Among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Now, is that true? The first thing I'm going to teach you is how to get along in Nebuchadnezzar's world. How to get ahead in Nebuchadnezzar's world. Because you're going to go, kids are going to go to school. And Jesus doesn't totally control all the educational systems. All the way from elementary school to university. Even if it's a Christian school, Jesus doesn't totally control everything. There's a, a world system that's against him. If you're in business, if you're part of a big corporation, you're going to have people that are like Daniel that really love the Lord, but you also have people that aren't into that at all. And I'm going to show you how to get ahead in Nebuchadnezzar's world. How many of you have somebody at work that always takes the credit for themselves? They repeatedly use the word I. Anybody know anybody like that? You've never met anybody that's focused on their navel and thinks about themselves and claims credit for things that they didn't do. Anybody frustrated this morning with somebody like that? You have to decide whether you're going to be like that. Arioch is the typical worldly man who says, I found Daniel. Daniel found him. Arioch didn't find anybody. But Daniel's the guy at work, they were the girl at work that elbows everybody out of the way, goes to the front of the line like Leo DeRozier says, nice guys finish last, and so do nice girls. And I want you to know that the Bible is very realistic about that. You're going to meet Ariochs in your life. You're going to be hurt by them. You're going to be tempted at times to say, well, I just need to be like them. And one of the things that your pastor teaches, I want you to decide this morning whether you're going to follow Ariac's example or Daniel's example. Ariac shows you how normal, worldly people seek to get ahead in Nebuchadnezzar's world, and they focus attention on themselves. They claim the credit for everything that's going around them, even if they didn't do it. And we're going to find out in our story how that all works out in the end. Now, how do you get ahead in God's world? Look at the next verse. Then the king asked Daniel, who's also called Belteshazzar, reminds us that Nebuchadnezzar tried to brainwash Daniel. His name means in, in Akkadian, may Bel protect his life. Daniel, on the other hand, says that God is my judge, who's the ultimate judge in the universe. And Daniel's name reminds him that the true God of heaven is the Lord of all the earth. Notice what it says. 
Nebuchadnezzar says, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Now, how would Arioch answer that question? How would you answer the question? Some of you go and buy lottery tickets. You believe in the gods of chance. In fact, lottery tickets have exploded. With the economy down, lottery ticket sales are exploding. Billions of dollars. Well, you just got the winning numbers. Daniel's got the winning numbers. He knows the dream. He can interpret it. So if you're trying to get ahead in the world, what should you say? I would expect Daniel to say, Ariac didn't find me. I found him. And I'm the one that has the secret. In 605 BC, you took me away from my home. If you let me go back home, and you let me go back to my mom and dad again, and you release me from Babylon, then I'll tell you the dream. It's 50-50. Don't you think that's a good idea? That's the way almost all of us think. And that's the way you relate to one another. It's not what you need to do as a submissive, humble child of God. You say, Dave, how do I live in my business? If I'm a great athlete and I just want a great victory, how should I respond? Daniel's going to show us. Look what Daniel says. Daniel replied, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician or diviner. The word diviner is added here. It means a fortune predictor, someone that can tell or a fortune determiner. The word actually means literally to cut. And these diviners would take a calf and they'd slaughter it and then dissect the liver out of it. They would usually do this with several calves, cut the liver in half. And then they would carefully examine the liver. And from the different livers, they even had books of ancient liver interpretation. And they would tell the future based upon what the liver looked like. They also would align, they get your birth date. And they would align it with the signs of the zodiac and the stars. And then they would use that alignment to predict the future. How many of you have ever looked at the astrology chart in the newspaper? Don't laugh at the ancient Babylonians. How many of you have spent hours and hours and hours in the present political thing looking at polls? How many of you know that a lot of times the polls haven't been accurate? But why do you sit with bated anticipation to find out the latest results? Why do you listen to George Stephanopoulos analyzing what the polls are saying? If you're a liberal right now, you are scared to death. Man, the vice president woman has just scared you, this moose hunting person. Oh, no, it's going to be the end of the world. Our stories, how do we ever compete with a moose hunting woman from Alaska? If you're conservative... You're scared. How do you ever compete with the guy that's going to fulfill Martin Luther King's dream? How do you ever compete with the first African-American president? You're all scared. Don't be scared. Stop doing that. That's just image. What's the real issues? Where's your real trust lie? Don't lie. Do careful investigations. Find out what people are going to really believe, what they're going to really say. That's what the real Daniels of the world do. Daniel isn't just someone that's going to use polls to predict the future. He's got a God 
that's not going to tell him with, with what's going to happen tomorrow. He tells him what's going to happen in the flow of world history. He's going to tell him who's going to win in the end. That's an incredible thing. So he reminds Nebuchadnezzar, listen, it's not going to be from the wise men or your fortune tellers who are astrologers. He said, there's a God in heaven, and he's the one that reveals mystery. And the mystery in this context is what's going to happen in the future. He had shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come, and the phrase days to come is loaded in the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah, it uses the idea of the days to come. How many of you have ever heard of a day when the lion will lie down with the lamb? Anybody ever heard of that day? How many of you have ever heard of a day when the, they'll beat their swords into plowshares because you won't need weapon anymore? How many of you have ever heard of that day? Isaiah said that there's going to come a day in the culminating time where there comes a great ruler, a great peacemaker, a great all-powerful one, and he's going to bring in the final culmination of history. And Daniel uses the phrase, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to tell you about what's going to happen at the culmination of history. That's what days to come means. It's really powerful. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay in your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. So it's not wrong for you to ask about your future. I'm challenging you to ask yourself this morning, how's history going to end? Who's, who's going to be on the top in the end? It says, as you were lying there, you thought about things to come. The revealer of mysteries chose to show you what's going to happen. As for me, the mystery has been revealed to me. Notice again, he said, it's not because of my human wisdom. It's not because I'm smarter than other living men. But the Lord God of heaven has shown you, O king, so that I may give you the interpretation. Now understand, uh, this is what went through your mind. Then he gives a dream. It's a dream you all know really well. Look, O king, there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue. It was awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its bellies and thighs of bronze. Its legs and its of iron and its feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away. The whole statue is gone. Without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and now here is the interpretation. So this is the dream I learned about when I was just a little kid. I'll never forget Dr. Woodbridge teaching me when I was just a little bitty kid, and I'd sit in the front row, and I'd actually take notes. And I want to challenge you because I don't think our kids are any dumber than I was when I was a kid. But I'll never forget him describing this statue, and I would write down for my dad, the head of gold equals Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon. Then you have the arms and the chest, and it's of silver. It's a more strong metal, but it's not as precious. And that's the kingdom of Medo-Persia, my dad would teach me. Then you have the central section, which is made out of bronze, which is a stronger metal yet but it's much less in quality. The weapons of Alexander the Great were made out of bronze. If you study the great conquests he made, you'll hear statement after statement after statement about the bronze uh, weaponry that they used and that they covered themselves with bronze armament to protect themselves. You've all heard of the Iron Legions of Rome. 
And then we had the final phase of the world kingdom because this is all the unity. It's flowing one into the other. The dynamics of human ingenuity, the dynamics of human pride, the dynamics of us getting it all together and setting up a kingdom on the earth where we don't need the supernatural God. That's the spirit of this image. And it's dazzling and it's awesome. And I want every one of you to know the very first thing that you need to think about as a kid, if you go to New York City, it's going to dazzle you. If you go to work on, on Wall Street, there's an awesome quality to that. If you go to the marvelous shows on Broadway, it's dazzling and awesome. If you're Chinese and you go to Beijing, at the World Olympics in China, they were trying to dazzle you. And some of you have responded, oh no, the Chinese are going to take over the world. How many of you have thought that? We're not going to make it economically. What are we going to do? America's going to disappear. Man, they're going to take over all of our jobs. You've actually shopped cheaply in, China, in, in Walmart, not in China. But you, you shopped cheaply in Walmart because of the symbiosis between China and Walmart. Don't be scared, but don't be dazzled. I want you to be a child of God that's not afraid. India's rising up. When you pick up the phone, how many of you ever talked to an Indian and you don't like their English? Instead of getting angry and chauvinistic because you're an American, do you ever pray for the Indian on the other end? That's a marvelous big country that the Apostle Thomas went to in the first century probably. In the department that I teach in Adela Seminary, one of the most gifted guys is from India. You don't need to be afraid of them. You need to love them. Because you know that all of history is going to flow and God's going to set kingdoms up and set them down. It's not going to be the end of the world after November. But we're ultimately going to face the end of the world. See, we have a still life picture. A dead statue. It doesn't really come alive until the missile shows up. The rock cut out without hands. And then everything moves. And he's not brought because of human ingenuity or planning or unity. He comes because the sovereign God cuts out his precious son and sends him into the world. And Daniel jumps all the way to the end of the story and doesn't tell you about Jesus coming as an insignificant little baby in Bethlehem. He jumps all the way to what's called the parousia, when Jesus will come the second time to conquer all evil, to destroy all the chaos that produces a Hurricane Ike, when Jesus comes the next time, there will be no longer winds that don't obey him. There will be no longer cancer that just reaches out and tries to destroy the good image of God that's created not to destroy life. Most of all, he's going to conquer sin and rebellion, and death. But until then, there's going to be a Babylon. There's going to be a Medo-Persia. The kingdoms are going to come. The kingdom to go. There's going to be an Alexander the Great, and he'll die at the top of his power. There's going to be Roman emperors. And there's going to be a time when things are really mixed, just like Jesus told you in Matthew 24, until he comes, there's going to be war and rumors of war. But what's really important in this story is not just all those identifications I made. What's really the focus in this story? It's the stone cut out without hands. And that's who I want you to focus on. That's who I want you to worship. That's who I want you to trust. Now, Daniel interprets the dream, 
And he says, you, O King Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And he says, God has given to you dominion over the beasts of the field and over the birds of the air. What does that remind you of? Somebody of really sharp Bibles can tell me, what does that remind you of? God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, let us make them man in the field and let them, everyone say it. I want everyone to say it. Let them rule. Was Nebuchadnezzar's rule over Babylon evil in itself? Now, this is very important. One of our police officers just leaving. He represents the government. Charles is going to bring about the enforcement of law in Skidder Hill the next few minutes, and we need to pray for his safety. A whole bunch of our church family come to either service, and we've got a loaded church family. You, don't, don't try to steal anything from the offering. This is not a good place to do But when I walked into Barnes & Noble's The Shack, now The Shack is a riveting story. It has great chapters on how to handle anger against God. It has a great chapter about how the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that little ones are taken to be with him can give us a comfort and a peace. There's a great chapter on that. But the shack also presents a picture of the Trinity in which you have a nice, congenial, warm circle of love. And throughout the shack, you need to go back and reread it. Throughout the shack, William P. Young says that power is evil. That in the Trinity, there is no obedience. There is no submission. In other words, the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father just get along in an egalitarian, warm, intimate, loving relationship. No obedience, no submission. Because power and evil are wrong. Did you all hear me? In a much more serious way, Brian McLaren is one of the major leaders in the emerging church. Brian, in his book, Generous Orthodoxy, and those of you that are under 35, love this stuff. Especially if you were raised like I was in an evangelicalism. Brian's seen evangelical leaders that lied to them. So have I. He's seen evangelical leaders that just live for politics. So have I. So he concludes and says that the Trinity, in fact, let me just read to you what he says about the Trinity. He says the Trinity, there's no need for power or submission. The Trinity is a unified, eternal, mysterious, and I agree with all that, relational community, a family, a society, an entity of saving love. I agree with that. God the Father and God the Son forever and ever have been expressing love to each other. But Brian forgot to tell you, the eternal trinity is not just an eternal trinity of love. It's also an eternal trinity of justice. It's an eternal trinity of omnipotence. It's an eternal trinity of holiness. And I'm not mean to you when I said that. So it is wrong. You all are being told repeatedly that all authority is wrong. Because Nixon lied at Watergate. Because Clinton was immoral. Because your political leaders have let you down. That means that any kind of submission to authority is evil. As I close today, please listen. 
Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you were the head of gold, and God has given you the right to rule. That was not the evil. That was not the evil. The evil was when Nebuchadnezzar forgot to be submissive to God. Let me illustrate it to you, because this is very powerful. You're in Galveston. The mayor of your town told you to do what? The governor of Texas did not call for a warm, congenial circle of therapy. We didn't have an Oprah Winfrey show. Oprah is one of the most powerful communicators you will ever see, but we can't have the Oprahization of America. There's a hurricane charging across the Gulf. The best information we have said it's going to come right against Galveston. I've been there many times. The, the wall is only 17 feet high. The surge is going to come in over 20 feet. It's predicted. I tell you to leave. Am I mean? Is that power evil? Should we reject the governor's authority? Who got hurt? The people that didn't obey. Am I saying that governments are not abusive? Yes, they are. Am I saying wives? Now listen, this is where it gets touchy. I work with women all of my ministry that have been abused by their dads, by their husbands. I am totally against that. I have worked with women that I couldn't even mention father or husband without them being sick to their stomach and having listened to my office. So I am not unempathetic. But that does not mean that you decide that everything is egalitarian, that there is no responsible leadership, that there's no one responsible in your home. The fact that a husband abuses or a father abuses does not mean that all fathers abuse and that all husbands abuse. Don't you understand? What I find is that I, I work with a ton of people that reject any kind of authority any kind of the exercise of power. And in popular literature, it is coming upon you like a flood. Well, I got news for you. My Lord Jesus is a nice carpenter from Israel. He's also the one that created light. He's also the king of kings. He's also Lord of lords. I want you to know this morning, he demands my obedience. Because he loves me. His justice, his truth, his beauty, and his love are not divorced from one another. And Daniel is telling us that there's going to come a stone that's cut out without hands. And the next time we come to the world, he's not coming as a nice, congenial, Galilean peasant. The next time he comes, riding from the heavens as a great, conquering, righteous power. And in the shack, there's a, a psychotic, evil man that murdered and raped a little girl. And he doesn't need a therapy group. He doesn't need to be understood. Because evil is not understood. Evil is violent. It's deadly. 
And it's not just in a psychotic guy that raped and murdered a little girl. It's right inside of me. And when God placed his son, as Daniel will tell us in Daniel 9, and allowed his Messiah, the stone cut out without hands, when God allowed his stone to come the first time, not as Nebuchadnezzar's image to crush all the armies of the world and all the kingdom of the world, the first time God let the evil crush him. And God was not being an evil, abusive father. He was being the most loving, holy, truthful, just, eternal daddy that you could ever know. Because evil is that bad. It demands death, not therapy. It demands justice, not understanding. And when Jesus hung on the cross by a mystery that I'll never understand, Jesus paid the bill so that I can go into Huntsville and tell a rapist and a murderer of a little girl, Jesus paid it all. And I'll never get over that good news. I don't tell the rapist, your parents made a mistake. If you would have gotten more understanding, or there was just a chemical mix-up in your brain, I tell the rapist, you're from hell. And so am I. There's an uncontrollable, violent, evil, lying, power-hungry, deceitful person inside of me. And so is you. And so are you. We don't all express in the same way, but evil's infected all of us. And you'll never understand the power of Calvary if all you have is a nice trinity where it's like therapy and gushy sentimental warmth. My heavenly father is not Oprah Winfrey. He is the invisible almighty one that dwells in invisible light. And his son reveals him to me. And that's why I pray to him, not my mama who's in heaven, because his son taught me to pray, our father who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Daniel in chapter 2 is telling us that when all is said and done, the king of kings is going to be the stone that comes. And I want to decide to live for that stone. Rock of age is cleft from me. Let me hide myself in thee. And that's what I covet for every one of you. The chapter closes with Nebuchadnezzar bowing before Daniel, not because he worships Daniel and he gives honor to Daniel's God. You know what scares me about Nebuchadnezzar? He gives all the right words. Daniel's God is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Daniel's God is, is, is the one that we need to obey. And next week, we're going to find out. He says, I'm not just going to be the head of gold. I'm going to be the whole image. And this is my, my word to you. What I just shared with you, you need more than right words. Nebuchadnezzar has right words and a wrong heart at this point. He has right words, but it's all just a veneer. 
And as one of your father in this family, I pray for every one of you to have a heart that's put yourself under this stone and you let him teach you about love, but you also let him teach you about truth. You also let him teach you about holiness. You also let him teach you about justice. You also let him teach you about power. And you read the precious book of Daniel and you let the precious book of Daniel teach you about the role of kings and about history and about how it all ends with this incredible stone cut out without hands that's going to come back. The New Testament reveals that Jesus was the stumbling stone that people stumbled over, and he was also the cornerstone and the headstone that you can build your life upon, and that's what I covet for every one of you. Rest in the stone today. Don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. When all the storms have come and all the governments have ruled, Jesus is going to be there. So as you go out this week, you're not afraid. You're men and women of truth. You're men and women that have a great message to share with others about this incredible stone. What a great, great good news we have.